Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places like The Dispatch, Arc Digital, and elsewhere, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link or you can use the links in the show notes which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. In this week's show, I'm going to start off with some thoughts on the possibility of college football ending for either this season or getting postponed to the spring. It's a story that was getting alerts just as I was going to hit record here, so I, w- I wanted to cover some of the main aspects of that story and talk through some initial thoughts on it. Then we're going to talk through the executive orders that the president issued this past week. We're going to talk about the politics surrounding them and whether or not they're constitutional. And then finally, we're going to look at the latest numbers on the coronavirus and finish off with this week's light item. So it is a jam-packed show this week, and we're going to dive right in. Now, like I said, first I wanted to start it off talking about this story about college football because it has large ramifications for sports in general. And this was breaking late Sunday evening as ESPN and other sports outlets were reporting that the Power Five conferences, so that means the Big Ten, the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12, and the Pac-12, those Big Five, they are all talking about how there might not be college football this fall. Now, as you might be aware, students are getting ready to head back to classes, to live on dorms if that's an option this year, but classes are going to start here very shortly. And now, the commissioners of these schools, the presidents of these these universities, and these different, these different power conferences in particular, they are talking about either canceling everything or postponing the football season until the spring. And the Big Ten is the one who's really driving this point home hard. The Pac-12 is also on board with them. They are the ones who are forcing the issue here because the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12, according to the reports, all want to wait and see what happens until students get back on campus for fall classes. Kind of see what happens with that and, you know, if you know if you've been to college or you know anything about it, you know that right now that's only about one to two weeks away, depending on when your school starts, until all those decisions are going to start being made. So all of this is really going to happen very soon. So there's one quote from that ESPN report that really stood out, and it was this. Nobody wanted to be the first to do it. And they're referencing postponing or canceling the season. Nobody wanted to be the first to do it, and now nobody will want to be the last. So you don't want to be the first one to make this decision, and you don't want to be the last one to jump out of the pool either. So that's effectively what the Big Ten is doing here. You might have heard earlier in the week that the 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 MAC, they 
or another another smaller football conference, they decided to cancel their season. We saw an individual school in the University of Connecticut, UConn, they canceled for the year two, but those are both small compared to the Power Five here. So the Big Ten does not want to go in by themselves. They want everyone to make the same decision at the same time. And by leaking this to ESPN, they're trying to force the issue. And it's not really hard. The weird thing about this is it's not hard to find many sports journalists piling onto the story and cheering on the idea of shutting things down. And I'd find this endlessly bizarre, especially from a sports journalist covering college sports, particularly college football, because that's the moneymaker. And I'm not sure some of these journalists realize that if college football is gone, and with it probably college basketball, these journalists are going to get furloughed. If there's nothing to cover, why would any media company keep you on the employment roster? Because we already know advertisement money, it's already low now for a lot of these places, and it will drop like a rock for many of these media organizations because there's not going to be live sports in the form of college sports there. Why would you advertise on any of these networks if there's no live events to advertise on where there are going to be eyeballs? And especially if you can't go to the stadium, you've got to watch it on TV. So if you're canceling that product, then there's absolutely no reason to to advertise to these people. So in response to all of this, after this story broke, college football players and many prominent college football players, so you might know Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence, they've all been tweeting under the same hashtag campaign, hashtag we want to play saying that they want to go out and play this season, they don't want a postponement, they don't want it canceled, and they've listed out a lot of reasons they want to play instead of having everything get canceled, and a lot of these make sense, especially for these players who are high profile. It makes sense for them to want to play. They have a vested interest in playing this next season. And so if you think about it from their vantage point, it makes sense to be pushing for this. The, The most prominent point that they have is that the most elite among those athletes, they're looking at this season, especially if they're junior or seniors, they're looking at it as this a ch- as a chance to launch into a professional career. Trevor Lawrence is more than likely going to be the number one quarterback drafted next year, and his play can either boost that or cause it to fall, but he needs to be able to play this next year in order to lock that in and develop even further. Canceling the season or postponing it is going to prevent him and others from getting a shot at future development, which they need. They need to develop, and they know this. Apart from the top tier, for a lot of other players, the team, the coaches, the workouts, and just that entire environment, that represents a family and a community that they have in their life that they can't get in any other place. So those two things by itself, it makes more sense to allow them to play and to be at school. Because otherwise, what you're doing is you're waiting until the spring and hoping against all hopes that there's going to be a vaccine if we get one. We may or may not get a vaccine. We don't know. We're testing it out right now. I'm very optimistic that we'll get one. But we don't know. And if we don't ever get a vaccine, which is a distinct possibility, then we just know we need to go ahead right now and start working our way back to a normalcy because we can't live in fear of this virus forever. And even if we develop a vaccine by the spring, the odds of us being able to disseminate it to the entire population that fast is very low. That would be very difficult. And so you're asking a lot to be able to keep everything safe just for this low possibility. 
The decision to cancel everything or postpone everything is also at a weird point, too, because if you look at, and we're going to get into this later on, but the national case counts, hospitalizations, and deaths are nowhere close to where they were in the spring when it was legitimate to cancel everything because we did not know how bad the virus was. If you look at everything right now, everything is on a generally good trend line. We're coming off a second round of highs across the nation. But everything looks like it's on a downward trend, and that includes deaths. I'll get into that a little later, but everything looks good. We're not trending in the wrong direction. So to make this decision now suggests something else other than just pure player safety. So if you're trying to cancel everything, like it made more sense to cancel things when baseball was trying to start, because that was in March. You're talking about spring baseball. You're trying to figure out whether or not you can even start a league. And they had the actual hardest position because they couldn't even start their regular season. They are now having to do this, you know, weird 60-game season now just to deal with everything. And they face the ultimate hard choice. College sports does not. We know how to prevent the spread. We know how to use testing and masks and everything else to prevent the spread. And we're seeing a lot of success in places like the NBA. Things have begun to quiet down a little bit in baseball. So people are beginning to get around and get used to dealing with this in these sports leagues. It can be the same for college football. So if you're not handling things here and you're saying you need to postpone things, what it really says is that the administrators and people in charge haven't done anything to prepare, which is alluded to in the ESPN report. So that's just bad on them. That's And you shouldn't be punishing these kids for the lack of preparation on your account. So all of this is just a big mess. And, it, you know, this, this could be horribly out of date by the time you listen to this because everything is moving quickly. But there is a push by the players to continue playing. And there is a push by the Power Five, specifically the Big Ten and the Pac-12, to try and eat postponed until the spring. But ultimately, that may end up in just canceling this year's season of college football. And we know this has been a very sudden decision because just last week, all the leagues were releasing football schedules for the you know, this season. So everyone was fine. So this has been a sudden turnaround where there's a panic here. And now everybody's trying, and now the Big Ten is trying to get everybody to jump out together. So this is very weird to watch it go through. So it's a story worth watching. It'll undoubtedly change by the time you listen to this. But it's worth mentioning some of the things that are out there and the fact that the players want to play. And they shouldn't be punished just because these school administrators are bad at their job and should probably be fired if they can't handle this correctly. So we'll get into some of the coronavirus aspects of of everything. Uh, I mentioned some of them here, but that'll be in the third segment of the show. We're going to take a quick break. and When we come back, we're going to talk through the president's executive orders. So the president has issued... Four executive orders this past week, all aimed at providing continuing economic assistance to those most impacted by the downturn in the economy as a result of the coronavirus. And I'm not going to lie, at first blush, my reaction was that these were just another instance of the presidency and the executive branch usurping power for itself, and that these were probably unconstitutional, especially after watching the whole debacle with DACA, DAPA, and a bunch of the other Obama-era executive orders just extremely overstep what had been done previously under other presidents. So 
that was my initial gut reaction when I saw these come out, especially since all you had were these headlines that just talked about the, you know, the payroll tax and other things that he was doing. So it just sounded unconstitutional, if not explicitly, then going against the spirit of the Constitution overall. And I think it's fair to say that these orders do run against the spirit of the Constitution, at least in my book, because you just don't want the president trying to wring out tax dollars for economic relief with just creative interpretations of statutes and in creative interpretations of how to enforce those statutes. It's not a good place to be in. You really do want Congress being the driving force here. As the, and as the old trial adage goes, bad facts make bad cases and bad cases make bad law. And when you get that just that that continuum of all those things getting together, you get these bad situations. And the reason I bring that up is because we're in a pandemic crisis right now. Our government is our government is trying to handle a pandemic, and that demands an answer from our political leaders. They have to do something in order to counter all the things that we're experiencing on a day to day basis. And so. Before getting into the executive orders themselves, I think it's worth pausing for a moment just to explore all the politics that are playing out in this situation because they matter. They describe why these orders happen and they describe why they're happening now in the way that they're happening. As of Monday, and like I said earlier, I'm recording on Sunday night, but as of Monday, we're 85 days away from the election. So that makes that puts us less than three months away from the general election now. So this is now crunch time. We're going to have the party conventions here in a couple of weeks, I believe it is. So this is crunch time. The political dynamics that created the atmosphere of cooperation when we were trying to get a deal cut in the spring, and that was when everyone was reacting to coronavirus, that atmosphere has changed. Now that both parties are facing an election, the pressures are different, and it's very easy to see where everyone stands and why they're taking these stances. So Donald Trump and the Republicans are facing an election that will get decided, at least in part, on how they handled and governed over our response to the coronavirus. Now, it's fully possible for something else to happen between now and then in these three months. In fact, I fully expect it. But right now... The coronavirus is going to dictate how people view the president and the Republican Party since both are in power. And so that means Trump and the Republicans are both incentivized to reach a deal with Democrats to get out more aid and just more money to the people. They want money to flow to voters so people think better of them right before they're going in to vote. So if they're incentivized to cut a deal... Democrats are incentivized politically in the exact opposite direction. They do not want voters to have a favorable impression of Trump or Republicans, so they are incentivized to not come to a deal. Everyone in the negotiations that are leading up to this, everyone played to their political incentives in these negotiations. Republicans tried to do anything to get a deal, and Democrats walked away and rejected everything. And they purposely put poison pill proposals in the legislation that they knew no Republican could actually accept, and even some of their own party would not accept. These were not serious people trying to negotiate in good faith. 
Pelosi and Democrats want to inflict maximum political pain before the election as a means of inflaming more hatred of Trump and Republicans. It's like when Obama faced a shutdown, he purposely made it that shutdown worse by making by just making all and creating more of these negative news stories coming out in order to hurt the negotiation that that he was having with Republicans and increase his leverage. Democrats are trying to get more leverage on the election by increasing the pain that people feel as a result of the coronavirus and then turning around blaming Trump for that pain. So everything people are saying, Trump, Senate Republicans, House Republicans, House Democrats and House and Senate Democrats, everything all these groups are saying, they're saying it through these lens. And that's why, while you know Pelosi and, Demo- and the Democrats behind her, they're going to claim that Trump's executive orders are bad, unconstitutional, and more, what they really want to drive home is that these orders are weak and ineffectual. Those two words were in um, their, their press releases a lot. It's not the unconstitutional nature or that type of argument that they're focusing on. They want to argue that these these orders that are being put out are weak and ineffectual and won't accomplish anything that what Trump wants. Because if they truly believe that these orders were constitutional slop, and I say that with quotation marks because that's quoting both Pelosi and Senator Ben Sass, a Republican out of Nebraska, then they would have a lawsuit ready to go to prevent the orders from ever going into effect. They are very unlikely to do that because then people because people will benefit from the orders. That's first. And so then if Democrats attack those orders, then it looks like Democrats want people to not receive the aid. They do not want the perception that of that in the media. They don't want the perception of being the person who's trying to prevent aid and money and resources from getting to people who need it the most. Because if that happens, the entire narrative shifts against them. If they sue and try to prevent Trump's executive orders, they're actively trying to block aid to the American people. So they're not likely going to do that. What they have to argue instead is that they're weak and ineffectual. And when we walk through these here and all these orders in a second, a few of them are built in such a way to undercut that very argument. It's actually kind of ingenious how some of these are designed to undercut that very argument. So with that, we're just going to jump right in. We'll jump right into the orders. There's, like I said, there's originally these were there are four of them, and I originally thought that they were unconstitutional myself until I dug into them, and now I don't think they are at all. I've got a column that's going to be going up on the Conservative Institute to this effect, and that comes out on Monday. And so we're just going to go through each one of these one on one and talk through what they do. So the first order is very simple. It's it's an extension of an older order. Uh, and it defers all student loan payments until the re- until the end of the year. So this order was originally supposed to expire at the end of September, and now it ends on December 31st. And this order is constitutional just because the laws that are currently in place, that have been in place for a while, I believe I saw that they were put in place under the Clinton administration at the behest of Al Gore. They allow, I believe it's either the Treasury Secretary or another part of the executive branch to essentially defer student loan payments for any number of reasons. And the the executive order in question here lists the statutes that allow them to do that. So this one is constitutional. And if you don't like that, you just have to go to Congress because this is something that they created a long time ago, and now the Trump administration is using that law. So that's pretty easy. It's just an extension of an older one. If you have a lot of student loans... 
and you're looking at, you know, when when is the deferral period going to end? It's now going to end at the end of the year. Although one of the clauses, interestingly enough, talked about the situation being bad, and it sounded like they would extend it even further. So I'm, I haven't looked into seeing whether or not there's a time limit to that, because it, there is a time limit on one of these others. But I'm not sure there is on the student loan things. So... That's just going to continue on. So that one's fine constitutionally, and the Democrats will not attack that one because they have a very large part of their base who is young, has college and you know graduate-level debt, and doesn't want to pay it. So they're not going to touch that one. That one's beneficial to them as well. The second order is also constitutional. And not only is it not unconstitutional, Democrats were asking Trump to take this second executive order all last week during the negotiations period when he first floated the idea of using executive orders if negotiations fell apart. And so the second order, it provides assistance to homeowners and renters to prevent any eviction evictions during this period of time. So the government's power to do this is stronger in areas where there's federal or state money involved in the process. So if you have a federal home loan or you have subsidized housing or something along those lines, anything along those lines, it's easier for the government to say to, you know, loan agents like Fannie and Freddie, hey, you guys can't do any more evictions right now. And then they're also working with other state and local officials to try to encourage private uh, private mortgage companies, private rental companies to not evict anyone during this time. And I think what they're trying to do is to get the CDC to issue an order that if you evict people, it will cause a more broad spread of the virus overall. That seemed to be what was being hinted at in one of the clauses that was in this one. So in this measure, uh, it... Um, like the student loans, it's an extension of what the president had already done once in March. So this is not a new one per se. It's just something that's extending an older order. And there's a quote when I was going through and reading up on some of these things from a Wall Street Journal on August the 6th. So that would have been on Thursday. And the journal asked Nancy Pelosi about the prospect of executive orders. Now, this was before the negotiations had totally fallen apart and they were working on negotiations that day. And then a report came out that the president was thinking of issuing out executive orders. He didn't say what kind of executive orders. So the journal was asking about him. And so this was these two paragraphs are their quote or quotes from their story on August 6th. And they said, President Trump has said he is considering circumventing Congress and using executive actions to provide jobless aid, suspend the payroll tax, impose partial moratorium on evictions, and assist with student loan payments. The White House hasn't disclosed details of how such actions will be put into place. Democrats have suggested that the White House is bluffing, saying that it only has powers to limit evictions and would face legal and logistical hurdles in pursuing other actions. Quote, I don't think they know what they're talking about, Mrs. Pelosi told, reporter, told reporters. Quote, the one thing the president can do is extend the moratorium, and that would be a good thing if there is money to go with it, she said, referring to Democrats' calls to also provide assistance to landlords to cover missed rent. So that's the Wall Street Journal on Thursday of this past week. And remember, if this is unconstitutional slop, it's the slop that Pelosi called for, as did most others in her party. So both of these are fine. They're constitutional, and the president has the capacity to do that. Now, you'll notice in that Pelosi quote, 
that she talks about funds being made available and what is available and what is not available. And that's where this third executive order comes in because what the president is also trying to do is to extend more unemployment insurance and benefits to more people. So what he's doing to that end is using FEMA and state-related versions of FEMA money in order to extend this to people who have been impacted by the coronavirus. So that's what the third executive order deals with. It extends FEMA and other disaster relief aid to those who have been impacted. What the president wants to do through this one is is use federal aid through FEMA and have the states match that by around 25% in a matching grant. And depending on how that works, that may just be another form of federal funding. So the states may not even have to even use their own money in this. They may be using another pool of federal money. So in essence, the federal government could end up funding a full 100% of these grants that would extend more unemployment benefits that is pulling from disaster relief funding out of FEMA, which because we have a natural disaster declared due to the coronavirus, the president can direct more of that money overall. And so that's what's being attempted to do here, to direct that money and to get more people unemployment insurance through this avenue while funding is there. And the interesting thing about that is that, you know, because you're drawing from this FEMA money, it is a pool that could eventually run out itself. I think they said there's about $75 million overall that was in this pool and a Uh, another amount that was in the state funds. And so because it's disaster relief, it's not that difficult for Congress to refill that money overall. All they have to do is meet up and pump more funding into it. And when we're in the middle of the hurricane season, it's likely that we're going to see more funding get dumped into these various funds. So the thing about that is that if Democrats at the state or federal level, don't like this executive order. And you heard Pelosi allude to that in the story that, you know, they would sue and go after this. The thing about this executive order is that no one is coerced into following it. It just asks the state to match the funds in question. It doesn't order them. So if you are a state and you want this federal money to go to unemployment benefits for your people, you just have to match it and ask for it and you'll get it. But if the states don't get the aid and they, they, you know, they'll just run out and have to use their own unemployment funds. So the president can say through this one, I want to provide the help, but your Democratic leadership is rejecting it. If the states accept the help because they think it's going to benefit their citizens, then that seriously undercuts the idea that these are ineffectual measures. Now, they may not be enough overall, but it seriously undercuts the idea that these are weak measures if a state governor is going for these measures and trying to use them. So that's how those worked. Of all of the measures, that is the one that is most likely to get sued over, but due to the fact that the states have an option of going in or not and there's no coercion... That's I just I don't see where there's going to be any standing to sue here because you would have to say that you want to accept it but you can't for some reason and there's there's really nothing there that I can see that they can sue over. So that brings us to the fourth one, the fourth executive order, which is probably the most controversial, and that is the payroll tax deferment executive order. So this this order works in a similar fashion to the student loans, and from what it looks like in the statute cited by the administration. And I went and looked at a, piece, at a number of pieces written by Josh Blackman, a law professor over at the Volokh Conspiracy Legal Blog, 
which is hosted at Regan, Reason Magazine. And he went through them all. And it looks like, from both the executive orders and his analysis of the statutes, that the Treasury Secretary does have the power to defer these payroll taxes in the same manner that they ha- they can do with student loans. So it's, it's sort of a similar type of power. The thing about it is that they look, it looks like they only have the power to do this for up to a year. So it's not a long-lasting power. And also what he doesn't have the power to do is to forgive or cancel the taxes that are deferred for that period of time. So what could end up happening here is that businesses will be told that they, they you know, the payroll tax is deferred until the end of the year. And then when you get to that point in time, all those taxes have added up over that time, and then they have to pay all that over, all those taxes up from that lump sum period. So there's a provision in the executive order that instructs the Treasury Secretary and others to look at any means, including new legislation, on how to forgive the payroll tax during this time period so that people will have this forgiven. But the Treasury Secretary can't do that by himself. That is very likely going to have to be an act of Congress because I'm not aware of any statute overall, really, where the government can just unilaterally forgive taxes for a period of time because that goes into the purse power that Congress has. So that's the thing that these companies are looking at, particularly the compliance section of these companies and their legal departments because they're really in a rock and a hard place here, between a rock and a hard place. Because you could go ahead and give this payroll money over to the people. So, you know, you're not having to collect it, but you could, and you could go ahead and just give that to them and then hope and pray a deal comes along at the end of the year where all those taxes from that period of time are forgiven. Or you could just continue collecting payroll taxes because you're concerned that you're going to have to pay a lump sum at the end of the year. And if you're already hit hard by the coronavirus, you're not going to be able to afford one of those massive tax bills. So you're just going to go keep on collecting it. And if all that gets forgiven in the end, then you can just hand that out as a lump sum payment to everyone. Or if it doesn't get forgiven, then you can pay over the correct money without having to worry about taking a hit. So these companies, they have a lot of big decisions ahead. And they've got to figure out how they're going to navigate this environment. I think I ultimately think this is just going to get forgiven either by Trump or Biden because neither one of them are going to want to say, yeah, go ahead and pay this up because it's just going to be a big – it's going to be – either this matters or it doesn't. It's either going to have an impact or it doesn't, and I think you're going to see them just forgive it outright because no one wants to pay it. And right now the only reason that you're not seeing forgiveness up front is because there's no deal in Congress. So look for continued negotiations on that front. Long story short, though, these orders are just getting overplayed by the press to make them sound far more unconstitutional than they actually are. And I just don't expect Democrats are going to challenge them. The politics are set against it. Because if Democrats do challenge these orders then that means that they are the ones who are opposing aid. And they don't want to appear like that. They do not want to appear to be doing that three less than three months before a major presidential election. That is not something that the Democratic Party wants to brand themselves as, as the party that opposes needed aid to the American public. So that's where the politics stand. They might... I mean, if Democrats do decide to issue a lawsuit, then you can say right then that these are some incredibly dumb people when it comes to politics. 
but I don't think that's going to happen. So we're going to take one more break here, and then we'll hit the coronavirus numbers and end on this week's light item. So the biggest story, I think, right now, when it comes to all things related to the coronavirus, is around testing. Because testing right now is slowing down, and I haven't seen one good explanation for why that's occurring. So overall, we've run almost 62 million tests. We're at 61.8 million tests. And week over week, we've just now fallen below 5 million tests over the span of a week for the first time in a while. We had 4.98 million tests run over this past week. So you could round up and say it was another 5 million, but we were approaching 5.5 million there for a while. And it looked like we were headed for 6 million tests in a week. And now testing has seriously dipped and it shows in every last single metric. So with this being the case, you really have to look at other measures to figure out what's happening. Because if your total number of cases is falling, that's going to mean your case counts are going to fall as well. So you're not getting as good of a picture of what's happening in the country overall. And when you look at case counts, they're falling, and a seven-day average is falling, which means we have to watch the positivity rate in particular which is the percentage of tests that are coming back positive. And last week when I was talking about this, I noticed that it, I noted that things looked like they were dropping on this front, and I think that's still true now because during the most previous the highest of the most previous peak, nationally test peaked at around 8.5% positivity. So we had dipped down below 8.5 last week. We were sitting at around 8%, and this week it's down to 7.5%. So it is slowly edging down, which suggests that we're seeing a less pervasive spread of the virus overall. But these tests are not dropping. They're not dropping extremely fast. You would like to see this go down a little bit faster than it is right now. So even though we are running fewer tests, we're getting fewer positive cases come back as positive. And most importantly here, the R not number, which tells us how the virus spread, how many people, you know, the virus spreads from one person to the next. So if you're one person and you give the virus to one other person, that is a one to one spread. If you have you spread it to two people, that's a one to two. So you generally want to keep that as low as possible. And this week, that number, the R not number, fell below one for the first time in a very long time. I believe the exact number was 0.98, but that is still significant because it suggests that the virus is not spreading anywhere near as pervasively as it was before, which could also explain the falling case count and the falling positivity rate because it means a person who gets infected does not necessarily infect a person after them. So that's a very good thing that happens, and we want to see that drop more as we go on overall. We did cross the 5 million mark this week. That is 5 million people who have been infected, and that is only the people that we know. We don't know if that counts all of the asymptomatic people that are out there. One model that I've started following suggests that around 12.2% of the entire U.S. population has been infected. And once you factor in, the way they do that is they factor in the total number of projected asymptomatic people that you have. And the figure that they're working around with is that around 40% of those 
uh, oh, 40% of cases are asymptomatic. So they're, these people are infected and they never show signs of it, signs of it, and they never get tested. So we, it's estimated that about 40% of those are. And you can move that up or down to get different figures. But if you plug in that conservative estimate, the model says that the lower end of the number of people infected in the country is around 9%, and the upper bound of that number is about 17%. So that would mean somewhere between 30 to 56 million people in the United States have had it if that model is true and if you use those estimates. And that's just, that's a flat out a lot of people. And there was a big deal to do about us hitting that 5 million mark this week. And we know that that's not a true mark because we just simply did not have the testing to know how pervasive the virus was in the country overall back in March and April. And then because we just, if you look at a place like New York and you look at the hospitalizations overall, everything said that we had a very pervasive virus running around then. We just didn't know who had it. So when you're talking about total number of people who have had it overall, it has to be much higher than 5 million people just due to what we have seen happen since March and April. So it's likely that that, I mean, that's, that's a model and it's projection, so we don't know if it's true or not, but it should give you an idea that at a bare minimum, if, we, if what we're seeing right now happened in March, that probably puts us at at least 10 million people in the United States have had this virus. And I'm more likely to believe that we're somewhere within the range of the model that suggests somewhere between 30 to 56 million people have had it. So if that's true... That could explain why case counts are dropping overall, because it means we're edging closer to a potential herd immunity. The virus is finding it harder to jump to new people who haven't had it. True herd immunity occurs somewhere between 60 to 90 percent, so it's far higher than where whatever we are now, even if we're at the high end of 17 percent, which I doubt. But even if we were at that end, we wouldn't be near herd immunity, but... If you add in this increasing number of percentage of people who have had the virus and now have antibodies in their system, if you add that to our much better social distancing measures as we put in mask mandates and things of that nature and all the other things that go along that, wash your hands, all that, the whole nine yards, if you include that with this growing number of people who have potentially had it, that could explain why we're seeing a lowering case count overall too. And that would make it harder for the virus to spread. And those are all good things. And another way to think about this and why this could be happening is that the people who all refuse to wear masks and the people who all refuse to follow any of these orders and are getting it and getting sick, basically the virus is running out of those kinds of people to infect at this rate. And everyone else who is responsible is going to be more protected now because those people are less capable of spreading it than they were a month or two ago. So that could be one of the reasons we're seeing some changes here overall. So it's not good that we have these testing changes happening where testing is dropping. You would like that to stay high, at least to give us you know, a baseline estimate of where things were. Just things didn't change, so I don't like them falling. I would like them to go back up. But it is good that these other numbers, which are unrelated to the number of tests that we run, are trending in a better direction overall, too. So, you know, it's been a good while, it's been a while since we've had some good news, and it's good to see that on a national level. Uh, the, the other thing that looks like it's peaked 
and I was kind of looking to see where this was going to happen, is deaths. If you look at the seven-day average on the COVID tracking project, it looks like the number of deaths has started to peak, and it may have edged back down. There was It looked like they went back up to either today or yesterday, which caused sort of a, a little bit of a flat line on the where the, the seven-day average was, but the overall look of it is that it's going to begin to trend down. So if that's true, then it looks like we may be past the very worst of the surge that started in mid-June, and that would be a very good thing indeed. The only caveat that I would add to that, though, is that several European countries, I believe among them France, Germany, Spain, and a few others, they're all experiencing a very clear second wave of the virus right now. I mean, it's just unquestionable. All their case counts are going up, hospitalizations, whole nine yards, all that's going up. If you go south of us and look at Mexico, they also have very large case counts. And then if you go outside all these countries and look at India, they, the virus looks like it's just running rampant through India right now, and that is not a good place for it to run rampant at all. So there are other places where it's spiking. This thing is not dead by any means. And that means if these other countries, especially if one on our southern border, if they are experiencing a bad, you know, a bad outbreak of the virus, that could lead us to have to experience a second wave down the line. That is not out of the realm of possibility. So we could be entering, you know, a downslope of our current of our current peak here, but we could be re, we could experience just a flat out another spike down the road. We don't know where or when, if. Uh, the places, I, I, frankly, I'll just be looking will be places like like New York, New Jersey, or Washington State, places that experienced that first wave early on. They experienced it clearly, and it's clearly going down now, so it's very easy to measure whether or not they have a second wave on their hands. They very clearly don't right now. All their numbers look great, but if you're going to look for a place where things have settled down a bit and could go back up, that would be where I would look first. It wouldn't likely happen in these places where everything is going down right now. So that's all I've got on the coronavirus this week. Some good news, some cautionary notes. So keep keep watching, keep reading, keep wearing your masks and all those sorts of things because it is making a difference. So we're just going to go from the coronavirus right into this week's light item. This is a debate that has been going across both my social media feeds. It's been, well, it's going to soon go through my work area because I'm going to pitch this same question to all of them. But Disney announced that they're releasing Mulan, the new live adaptation on early video demand, video on demand for $29.99, so 30 bucks. And that amount is on top of the $6.99 that you pay for Disney Plus each month as a streaming service. So I've seen this being debated among all the parents I know. Everyone's trying to figure out, are we going to get Mulan this year? I know that for me, just on a personal level, I would not pay that price because I don't care anything about seeing Mulan. But I do know parents are far more likely to do that. We got um, There was a few months ago... I think it was in April or so, we got a taste of this because the second Trolls movie came out and it was around $20 for video on demand. And the company released that, from all reports that I saw, just made an absolute killing off having that early release where parents had a new movie they could show their kids at home to end all the doldrums of the quarantine period. 
So Disney is very clearly trying to get on that same boat here. They want to replace all the money that they were losing from the theaters, and they're trying to make it up here. So can, will it work? I have no idea. So, you know, I'm pitching it to everyone here who listens. Would you pay $30 for a movie to get it early? I'm not sure there's any movie that would cause me to do that. I might do it for a television show, as I've been thinking about it some more. Like, if they gave me early access, one to three months early, for something like The Mandalorian, where I got all the episodes, I would absolutely jump on that. Or something similar to that. But for a standalone movie, I can't see doing that. Television show, though, where you can binge watch it and you feel like you're getting more, the $30 makes more sense. And if you're ever a person who bought DVD collections of movies or uh, of television shows or Blu-rays of television shows, I I can see that happening a little bit more, a little bit more than I could the movie. So, but not Mulan. Mulan's definitely not for me and I won't be paying that. But I am curious what you guys think and if you will be paying to get Mulan or perhaps look forward to paying for another movie. Because if movie theaters don't open, we'll be have to be, this will become the new model. So would you do it? Would you not do it? I'm curious what you think. That's all I've got for this week's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for our next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure you sign up for that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.